look at the end of the 19th chapter. When we left off last week, remember we had talked some about dying and about being buried and about resurrection to new life. We talked about John's baptism and baptism into Jesus and how each of us, as we, as we begin to repent and we begin to turn around and we, we begin to sense in our life a need for, for some changes, that though we might turn around, just turning around isn't enough. That we can't change our life sufficiently to bring ourselves into relationship with God. We can't change our life sufficiently in and of our own strength and abilities to be better people, though we might try. It's going to take a, a willingness to not only turn around and repent, but it's going to take a willingness to die. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight, but from a little different perspective and how death works itself out in our life and, 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 and how we see some areas in our life that we need to die to, that we need to begin to give up and let go of, and how to do that. As, as we concluded last week, we saw that great numbers of people were coming to the Lord. Even people who had become Christians in Ephesus under Paul's ministry, how they still lived with one foot in the old magic practices and one foot in the kingdom. And how as, as God moved and as how he worked powerfully through, through Paul, and remember when the that, that demon-possessed guy beat up on those seven false prophets, those sons of Shiva, how, how everybody just, the word of God and the, and the name of Jesus was held up in awe throughout all of Ephesus. Jesus was no longer being thought of as just another magical term, a magical abracadabra, but that Jesus now was being exalted. People were beginning to understand just who he was. And so they were holding him in awe. And as a result of that, People were standing back saying, wow, and getting saved. And, and any time the gospel begins to really move, revival begins to happen, large numbers of people start getting saved. You can expect resistance and opposition to rise up. In every situation, we look through to this point in the book of Acts, every time we've seen the gospel go forward, every time we've seen God do a new work, that at some point, opposition rises up. Isn't that true? Have we seen that just about every, every time we flip the page? Opposition not only arises when the gospel is seeking to bring new people into the kingdom, opposition arises in our own lives as Christians as the gospel seeks to go deeper into our life. Can you relate to that one? <laughs> I can. When God wants to take new territory, when he wants to go into some of those closets and clean them out, some of those hidden corners in our life that no one knows about except me and him, and now a couple other people. <laughs> That's a private joke. <laughs> but you see, when we finally let him in, and we unburden ourselves and let him take it, Oh, how freeing it is. How freeing it is. Now, we're going to see this, and I hope you can follow along with me in this passage we're going to look at about how resistance rises and, and how we see it in our own lives. As we look at, at Demetrius, the silversmith, 
and his associates. Demetrius is a, is a kind of a person that, that this world is full of, and many of us were, were Demetriuses before we became Christians. And to various extents, there are still remnants of Demetrius in all of us. Because none of us are perfect. The Apostle Paul, when he, when he writes in the various pa- passages in the New Testament, in his epistles to the various churches, he says, in effect, that God is in the process of making us more like Jesus. He's in the process of perfecting us. And that it's going to take some time. But that he wants us to cooperate with him in the process. He wants us to, to trust him and to, to, to walk out, to fellowship with him. And that as we turn to him, as we hide ourselves in him, then he does a a miraculous work inside of us. Things that are just mind-boggling. And and all of you have experienced them, to one degree or another, of of God's work in your own life when you've turned to him. Some of you shared testimonies with me tonight, just coming in in the building, about miraculous things that God has done. Because you were willing to trust him. You were willing to... Turned him. You were willing to step out in faith, and he was right there to meet you there. Dynamite stuff, huh? God's alive. He is real, and he is moving in lives. Demetrius. We're told by Luke in the 23rd verse of the 19th chapter. About that time, meaning this is probably somewhere around April of the year 54 to 57 A.D. We're not sure exactly the year, but it's around April. We know that because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter, when he writes a letter, his first letter to the Corinthian church, he says to them he had an opportunity to stay on in Ephesus because a great opportunity or a door had opened for him to minister. Scholars think that that opportunity happened in the month of April in, in, because he says he's going to go, he's going to be, go to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and Pentecost happened about that same month too. And so what was happening in, in Ephesus at this time was a great feast, a month-long festival to the goddess Artemis or to the goddess Diana. And this is a festival in which literally thousands of people throughout the whole district of Asia would stream into Ephesus, which was the capital city where the great temple to Diana, and that was one of the seven wonders of the world, this massive temple and all the worship that went on to the, to the goddess Diana, they would stream into, this, into, into Ephesus uh, for this great festival. Well, you see, Paul sees this as a marvelous opportunity. He says, man, I'm not leaving now. Earlier on, in the, toward the end of the, uh, or the 21st and 22nd verses, he says he's going to go to Jerusalem, but, and he sends Timothy and, and uh, another guy up uh, to back to Macedonia, Erastus. But he stays on in Asia. He stays on in Ephesus to minister to all these people, to teach. We're told in Corinthians that he spent three years in Ephesus teaching. Well, with all these people coming, we're told uh, by Luke that a great disturbance arose about the way. Now, the way is the description of Christianity at that particular point in history. What was the great disturbance? Well, it was basically economic. Now, here's the scene. Paul's been preaching in Ephesus for three years. Lots and lots of people are coming to Christ. The more people come to Christ, 
the fewer people going to the temple to do their thing and to support the stuff that's going on in the temple. The less, num the, the least, less number of people who are buying trinkets, they're buying little shrines to take back home with them to worship Diana in their homes. And all of this has to bear on this guy Demetrius and the silversmiths who, guess what? They make the trinkets. Now, you may be able to relate to this, you know? I was thinking about somebody who's, who I know and who was in a, in a business that um, you couldn't exactly call it godly. Um, I can't say what it was, but you know, it was their livelihood. And when I began to share the gospel with this person, they began to think, hmm, I'm in a dilemma here. If I come to Christ, does that mean that I have to give this up? And I said, well, what do you think? Gladly, the person came to Christ. Gladly. And as she came to Christ, when she gave up her business, her livelihood, the only thing she knew for years, she was faced with a whole new life. And she said, now what do I do? I said, the first thing is you trust the Lord. And do you know that it wasn't a week later that God provided her with a brand new life, a brand new job, and a man in her life that God brought sovereignly to love her and take care of her? This lady was a prostitute. Had spent nearly 10 years of her life as a prostitute. And how God had done a sovereign work in life. Demetrius, his whole livelihood, the livelihood of all these people is at stake. You would think that as they witness Paul and in, in, in all the preaching for the three years he's there, and all the people are coming to Christ, and all the people whose lives are being changed for the better, the people who are being drawn out of idolatry, drawn out of, of uh, the practice of occultic magic and, and demonic practices, You'd think that Demetrius would say, wow, man, they have something better. <laughs> but sometimes the pull is so great to maintain the status quo, to trust in what we have, rather than to trust in what might be. This is Demetrius' situation. And sadly, this is still a situation for many Christians. You see, we... We have deep personal needs, human beings do. We're not perfect beings. We have to be filled up regularly with food and oxygen and water, don't we? What happens if you don't get oxygen at a pretty regular rate? <laughs> kind of obvious, huh? Or water or food. If, that, if those things aren't put into us uh, fairly regularly, we begin to suffer a physical breakdown, literally. Well, just as, as if we have physiological needs, we have also deep personal needs that are just as unrelenting, just as demanding to be satisfied as are our physiological needs. And those deep personal needs fall into the category of a need to be loved and a need to be valued, a need to, to feel like I'm adequate. Those are deep, deep needs. And every single one of us crave to have those things filled. And since we're born, 
since our first moments of self-awareness, I am, I exist, we begin to reach out to try to get these needs met. The Bible talks about foolishness. In Proverbs, it says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. Bound up tightly, it's in there. And that it's driven out with the rod of discipline. Not just spanking, but discipline in terms of training and order and structure in the child's life as we as, we as parents learn to bring our children up. That we drive out this foolishness with discipline. See, foolishness, simply defined, is I'll be happy if I can get my own way. Now, have you ever been there? Yeah, we have, huh? And most of us are still there. We want our own way. We want things when we want them, on our timetable. That's foolishness. And, and since, since little children, we've grown up, most of us, not, not being disciplined in the way of the Lord, not having been brought up in a, in, a, in a manner in which we begin to really understand who God is and who Jesus is to a point where we, were, we want to give him our life and we want to be men and women after his own heart. Most of us have not had that. I hadn't. I was raised with a lot of, a lot of guilt and a lot of fear. And I turned away from God. I said, I don't want anything to do with you if you're even there. Because you don't love me. All you want to do is beat on me. All you want to do is send me to hell. If there's even a hell. But you see, growing up, we seek to have these needs met and nobody else is inputting into our life how to best get them met. All of our peer group and and, and people around us and and our own sinful nature begins to reach out and, and in ignorance, foolishly grab onto this thing and that thing and the other thing so that we'll feel secure, loved, appreciated, valued. We grab onto anything. We look around, what's everybody else grabbing onto? We'll grab onto it too. And think in your own life of some of the things that you've held onto. People people still in the church today, born-again Christians, believe down deep inside, though they'd have a hard time admitting it, confessing it, believe down deep inside, that they must have money to be significant, to be important, to be valued. They must have lots of it to be secure. They must have somebody's affection consistently. They must have approval from people. Otherwise, they are worthless. They're, worth, they're not worthwhile. And all of us have those things. If you stop for a few minutes, you close your eyes, you say, Lord, Lord, show me, show me where, where I'm bound up with those things. Show me where I'm like Demetrius, who's, 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 who's seeing the obvious but, but not seeing it. Who's not giving his life over to the Lord, but he's still fighting to retain money, his business. You see, when the gospel seeks to move, when God wants to work, most of us see God as a threat. The first thing in our mind is he was going to take away stuff. Of course he's going to take away stuff. He's going to take away yucko stuff. (laughs) He's going to take the foolishness away and replace it with wisdom. 
See, when you drive out foolishness with discipline, you have a vacuum. You must replace it with something, and the Bible says replace it with wisdom. I'm teaching my little boy. You've heard me talk about him. I'm teaching him the difference between foolishness and wisdom. It's an exciting adventure. And very simply, we, we were, we started, we've been doing this few, for a few weeks now. First, he's, you know, he's almost six, so I have to teach him the words. I have to teach him pronounce foolishness and pronounce wisdom. Then I'm teaching him how to spell the words. I want him to be able to picture those words in his mind. We had a little discussion tonight, just before I left for church, about foolishness and wisdom. And so I'm teaching him, and I, to help him understand foolishness, I'd, say, I'd tell him, Michael, foolishness comes from the devil. And foolishness is, is doing things your own way. And foolishness always leads to pain. He says, is that why you spanked me? <laughs> I said, you got a grasp. you got a hold of it. That's right. When you get a spanking, then you understand that you were involved in foolishness. And foolishness always leads to pain. Daddy wants you to learn wisdom. He said, what's wisdom? I said, wisdom, Michael, is doing things God's way. He said, oh. And I say, wisdom always leads to pleasure, to goodness, to good things. Sometimes, though, wisdom doesn't seem like it can, it'll be fun. <laughs> Foolishness seems like it'll be fun. And so you have to be real careful. So you see, we're in this process of learning the difference between foolishness and wisdom. I'm in the process of teaching my son biblical principles to somehow save him from some of the stuff that I went through in the devastation of my own life. Now, I know I'm not going to be able to do everything, but I can certainly give him a head start, give him some input. Demetrius. A, dis a disturbance about the way arose. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. You see, Luke is taking great pains to show us that the dollars are really the issue here. This guy's sense of security, where he's placing it. Brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So apparently lots and lots of people aren't doing business with Demetrius and his trade any longer. These guys are hurting financially. Now what's the solution? Should we join them? No, he's still trusting in human wisdom, foolishness. He's still trusting in money. He's still trusting in his own way. The way he has determined over his lifetime will meet his sense of security. If he has money, he is worthwhile. If his trade flourishes, he is worthwhile. I struggle with that as a pastor. I struggle with that. It's, I, I, I grab the church and I let it go. I grab the church and I let it go. I say, God, it's your church. Then I grab it back. It's my church. <laughs> if the church grows, I'm worthwhile. If the church doesn't grow, I'm worth, not worthwhile. So I understand what Demetrius is struggling with. Or at least not struggling with, not willing to face. At least I'm willing to face it. 
What is it in your life that, you, that you're holding on to that brings you a sense of worthwhileness that makes you important or loved or valuable that you need to let go and trust God for? See, I'm learning to, to let go of, of the church and to trust God and say, Lord, it's your church. I'll just get up there and yak. If I drive them away, I drive them away. <laughs> you bring more people for me to drive away. It's all right. I trust you. <laughs> what are we trusting in? You see, sometimes the pain of dealing with these issues is so great. Sometimes the reality of feeling worthless is so great and the pain attached to that is so great that people anesthetize themselves with alcohol or drugs or food or something. See, the pain is so great. They, there's deep longings in them that have been unfulfilled and they don't yet know how to come to the Lord to let the Lord fulfill those needs let the Lord's love fill their heart. Let the Lord's sense of peace and grace fill them so they understand that they are worthwhile. They have not yet learned how to, how to come into relationship with Him. And so they turn to other things. Food is their solace. Rocky Road ice cream has been my solace. <laughs> I, do, I studied myself. I watched myself. When I get depressed and bummed and, and I'm feeling low and I'm feeling worthless and insecure, you know what I do? I head for 31 flavors. I get a big tub of 31 flavors, Rocky Road, and I go home and go... <laughs> then it dawns on me what I'm doing. I say, God, forgive me for not trusting in you. Sure, I'm in a valley. I'm not living on a perpetual mountaintop. But I'm in a valley, and when I'm in the valley, I don't need to turn to Rocky Road. I can turn to him and say, Lord, I'm going to wait on you. <laughs> I'm trying to be serious here, you guys. <clears throat> Debbie, stop that. <clears throat> Shoot. I'm trying to be serious and you guys are laughing at me. So what does he do? We're told that in, in verse 27, Demetrius goes on and he says, there is, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Now what happens if the temple of Artemis is discredited? Is he really concerned about the temple? Only in a sense that as long as people still believe in Artemis, they're still going to do business with him. <laughs> That's what he's concerned about. Right? <clears throat> and, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. You know, he appeals to um, religious motives. People do that all the time, don't they? They'll either stir you up with patriotism or religious motives. And generally, there's an economic issue underlying that. Again, look, see in Demetrius where he's at. 
He's sincere. He's not just devious. He's not just a villain. He's a guy who has learned with his whole life to depend on the externals. He's a guy that's learned to trust in money, and he's got to have it. Paul, the gospel, God changing people, is a threat to him, is a threat to his security. And God moving in our life oftentimes is a threat to us. That's why we don't involve ourselves in fellowship, intimate fellowship. That's why we don't open up. That's why we get involved in small groups. Because when we do, we know that, that sooner or later something's got to come out. We've got to open up. We've got to share these things that we've been living with for a long time. And we've got to seek for help. And you know where God heals? God heals in the context of relationship. We're the church. We're the body of Christ on earth. And, and he's called us to what? Minister. We read it in the Gospel of Matthew. We read it in the first second chapter of Acts when Jesus gave the command. He says, go, go out into the world. Preach the good news. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. He said for us to do that. We're the church. We're to do that. We're to do that with one another. We're to reach out beyond our doors here and to do it with other people. Boy, there, there's nothing more exciting than when God frees you up from something. When finally you learn to step out in faith and, and you've got this thing in your life, whatever it is, and, and you say, Lord, Lord, I'm feeling low. I'm feeling discouraged. I'm, I'm hurting. I'm, I'm feeling alone. But I'm not going to seek refuge in this thing anymore. I'm going to seek it in you. I'm going to wait on you. Lord, even if I have to hurt, I'm going to wait on you. I'm just going to wait on you. You know what that is? That's called dying. That's called waiting in the tomb. So that he can raise us back to new life. And there's something of Demetrius left in all of us. They are what I call core issues that are often undealt with. See, we'll let God deal with the peripheral issues, won't we? I mean, the stuff that's just out there in the front, and it's kind of easy to give to God, and, you know, we'll kind of be a good person. It's kind of like the Pharisees, you know, they were nice and clean on the outside, but the inside is where the real dirt was. But you see, when we come to grips with one of these issues, or when we're willing to, as we wait on the Lord, this core issue slowly turns into a peripheral issue. And now, no longer is it threatening. No longer is it needed in our life. We can begin to give it up to the Lord. That's dying. That's dying. And the Lord frees you up. Marvelous stuff. Exciting stuff. Well, let's see how they deal with it. He's got these guys all stirred up. Now, I'm sure this isn't the result of just one meeting with, with, the, with the guild or with the trade people in the trade. I'm positive that what we have here is a process that's been happening over several months because Paul's been ministering there for three years and lots of people are getting saved and business is going downhill over the three years. Finally, it reaches a climax where Demetrius says, we've got to do something here. He stirs up all their guys. Verse 25, 28 says, When they heard this, they were furious. And they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 
That was their battle cry. That was a prayer. That was what they uttered. That was what they, the, the term of worship in the temple when they went there. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they get some, they're all whipped up. Look what else happens. <clears throat> they're shouting this. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Apparently, they, went on, they were a lynch mob going looking for Paul. They're going through the whole city yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And all the people are coming out of their shops, coming out of their homes, doing this. Wow, what's going on? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they're rushing someplace, and people just begin to follow after them, not knowing what's going on. And this little core group of guys are rushing down to try and find Paul. They're going to hang this guy. They can't locate him, apparently, but they find Gaius uh, and, and Aristarchus, Paul's two buddies. These guys are good enough. We'll take these guys into the theater and hang them. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly, I love this, listen to this. The assembly was in confusion. There's all these people in this theater now. And some scholars think that the theater, theater could sit at least somewhere between twenty and 50,000 people. So you got this place packed with people in Ephesus. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people... Typical mob mentality, isn't it? You know that there are people today who come to church who don't even realize why they're there? Do you know that? People come to church for, a lot of times, for the wrong reasons. Why do we gather together? Why do we congregate together? To be seen? Some people do. Do we congregate together just out of habit because, well, you're supposed to do it? Some people do. We congregate together to praise his name because he's a living God. We congregate together not to say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We congregate together and say, great is Jesus to praise his name, to celebrate who he is. As we look around and we see what he's doing in other people's lives to celebrate the reality of him. That's the only reason we get together. And in that kind of a context, we're built up. We're encouraged. We're excited. We go out of here feeling a little bit better. <laughs> when I first came to Hope Chapel, I'd given my life to the Lord. I was devastated. I walked into these, this auditorium. I sat down. And for somehow, I couldn't explain it, but I felt better. I didn't know why I was here. But I just liked feeling better, so I kept coming back. And pretty soon I began to understand why I was feeling better, what was going on in my life, and why I was coming back. Most people don't know that. Well, he goes on and says for us that the, uh, <clears throat> the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. Now, Alexander uh, was a guy who was going to try to dissociate the Jewish group from this Christian so that the Ephesians wouldn't persecute the Jews. And he's going to say, hey, we're not part of this group. We're not with Paul and these guys. 
He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when the re they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Can you imagine for two hours? Try to picture God in heaven, you know, looking down. <laughs> Grieved, saddened about how these people are so, so deceived, so lost. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But greater is our God. See, there are a lot of great things in this life, aren't there? There are. there are. There are great works of literature, but greater is this. There are great philosophies, but greater is this. There are great works of art, but there is no greater work of art than, than each of us that God is transforming us. There are great kingdoms and, 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 and great things that have happened in the history of mankind, but greater is the kingdom of God. Greater is the kingdom that's growing and growing and growing. You see, Ephesus lies in ruins today. The temple of Diana is destroyed. They can barely discern the outline of where the temple was. But the Bible tells us, and we know experientially, that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against the church. Not even the gates of hell shall prevail against the church. You see, God is greater. Greater than anything we're holding on to. Anything that we're holding in our life to bring us comfort and solace. Anything that's in our life and that makes us feel more valuable, more important, more loved, more secure. Mothers and, and, and some parents smother their kids because their whole life has lived out on their kids because of their own insecurities. People become workaholics because their work is their God. You know what they're saying? They're saying, great is my work. Great is my family. Great is my whatever. Some people are immersed in, in immorality because they've gotten so flabby, so undisciplined in their life. They've become so idolatrous that the only thing left open for them is immorality. They've worshipped themselves. But without knowing it, they end up degrading themselves. That's what Paul says in Romans. They end up degrading themselves. And if they... And if they stop, if they would take a minute just to look at themselves and look at their life objectively, realistically, they would be disgusted. And you and I have been there. That's why they keep running. That's why they keep immersing themselves in it, because they know I don't dare stop and look at myself. Because if I do, I'm not going to stand what I see. But I don't know where else to go. I don't know where else to go. What are you holding on to? That in your mind, that in your life, you have learned to make your God. That thing that you run to, that you hold on to, 
The thing that, of letting go of is so painful. It's going to take so much courage to face letting go of. To stand there naked without it. What is it? That you're going to stand before the Lord and say, God, help. I'm going to wait on you. Greater are you than this other thing I've been holding on to. Each of us have them. Each of us have them. If you're not in touch with it, ask God tonight. Before you leave here, God, show me. Show me what it is in my life that I've been holding on to, I've been running after to make me feel worthwhile that I need to let go of, that I need to turn to you, trust you for. Every one of us have them.